0: This is State of
1: Demand Gen. Hey everyone, it's Chris Walker and welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. If you haven't heard already, we are back for Season 2 of Demand Gen Live featuring Megan Bowen at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. We are leaning in hard to the AMA style, so what that means is that we will set the floor with a couple key topics, timely, relevant experiments that we literally just ran this morning that we figured something out that we can share with you. And then we'll transition to the AMA style. So you get on, you ask your question. A lot of other people, demand marketers, salespeople are on there asking questions. You can learn a lot, get to meet people build a little community, maybe get a new job, whatever you want to accomplish. We're doing it in demand and live. So we'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. So there's a thing not on the agenda where I wanted to get started tonight, actually. I want people that mainly for the listeners, not for the people on here, but I want the people that are listening afterwards to think about this point, which is that over the past three days, I've had three sales calls with very, very sophisticated, fairly large companies, series C all the way to publicly traded companies. All three of them, director of demand gen VP of marketing CMO is who I talked to. All three of them are selling a mid market product at 20 to 60 K CV and are all focused on going up market to their low six figure to low seven figure type of deals. Okay. All of them come in and they ask me for the same thing. They're like, Hey, we want to do ABM. And then, so I ask because that term is so nebulous, nobody really knows what it means. And so I'm like, what exactly do you mean when you say ABM? And then I hear back from them. And these are the things that I hear. I hear, um, Account prioritization so we can go outbound, email writing so that we can go outbound, (laughs) and intent data signaling prioritization so we can go outbound. And my response to them, and people will know where I'm going with this, is that is sales. That is not marketing. And so, like, we do marketing over here. I don't know about you, but like, you have a very, most likely, a very large, capable sales team that is able to buy a piece of technology and figure out who to go outbound with. And your marketers need to be focused on doing actual marketing, creating demand. So I just wanted to get that in there. I, th- I think it's an interesting point. I think a lot of people, um, especially in that type of company, are going to it. The reason that they're going to it is because their current demand model is so broken. I hear this term a lot. I hear We want to move from the lead-based model to the account-based model. And I'm like, it's cool if you want to call it one way or the other, but the thing you need to change is your actual execution, right? Like it doesn't matter whether you call it an MQL or an AQL. <laughs> it's still, it's, you're going to end up with the same, the same stuff. And so I feel like people are really trying to solve the wrong problem here. Um, that is for mainly the listeners. Maybe that sparked a question. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it didn't. Cause a lot of people on here kind of feel my philosophy on that. And so if it, if there's not a lot of streams coming through here, I'll actually hit on the things on the agenda.
2: Yeah, get into the agenda. And then we have some good questions that were submitted in advance we can pop into after.
1: Cool, cool, cool. So, on the agenda here, I think um i was I was in in the car coming I think I was driving back from my uh, family Thanksgiving, which actually happened on Friday, not Thursday because I got stuck in Mexico um, one extra day cause my plane got delayed. so we had I was driving back on from Thanksgiving on Friday and I was listening to a podcast and I was thinking. Um, and some of the things that I was thinking about is it would be really helpful to kind of like zoom out here where I feel like over time we've gotten, deeper and deeper at the tactical level to take a little bit of a zoom and just to talk through, I have two key like more stories to talk through so that people understand this progression. I mentioned something in a comment w- in LinkedIn today that more or less said, like a lot of people don't understand my points of view because they don't see the world the way that I do. And that's perfectly fine. But I, I think maybe some of these stories will help people um, understand so the first one is, I think, a lot of people that are building businesses, whether it's the, um, you know, seed stage SaaS company at 400K ARR, or the professional services company, or the consulting. I think a lot of people can learn from this. Even big companies could learn from this, for that matter. Are some of the key steps that I feel like we took that were rare um, in order to get to where we are right now. So there were a couple key things where the decisions definitely wouldn't fly in most companies because it's just, they, they wouldn't do it this way. They didn't have the, the intuition, I would say. The first thing, if we look back is I hired, my first hire was a videographer. <laughs> and, and so that, that would never happen in one of these companies, but I just knew that that was the key to business development um, as opposed to what most people in my role at that size would do is they would hire a sales rep. Right. So that was one key distinction. And I started producing content before I had done, before I went and hired the videographer, I demonstrated proof of concept on LinkedIn on written posts. And so I saw the opportunity on LinkedIn. And then I decided to bring video in because I, I, regardless of the metrics, because very few people post link video on LinkedIn because the views go down. But everyone here knows that the views of a video are way more impactful than the one second impression of a text post that somebody doesn't even click see more on. And so I believed in the video, I went into the video strategy. And then there were a couple other key things that that I did along the way. The next thing that I did is that in order to start creating more content, I did what Bob is doing. I did what some of the people on here are doing. I started a podcast and it wasn't even a podcast. It was, Hey, VP marketing at a SaaS company that right now would, I'm not even on their radar would never work with me. Hey VP of marketing at 50 million AR SaaS company. Um, would love to, uh, would love to have you on the the podcast. (laughs) You know what I mean? I didn't, I don't even think I had a name for it at that point. (laughs) would love to have you on the podcast. And I talked to eight VP marketing CMOs and we recorded it on zoom and that zoom went on YouTube and, but the main point is that I got to talk to them. I got to understand them. And then we had a, we had the videographer on the other side, creating content for me. Cause I got to share my points of view. And then that went out, right? Everyone knows that play, but I thought that was really insightful. And I still give that advice to people. I gave that advice to someone on a podcast this morning. Like that is a really good play. Um, and so I did those things. I learned a lot about what's going on in those types of companies. I refined the messaging, I refined the offering, I built relationships. The next thing that I did was um, an event strategy. And so people know that I did this with Josh Braun and Justin Welsh. Um, If you really look back at the thing, like um, I'm just gonna like, I'm 100% truthful on this. It doesn't make me sound good, but like I manufactured those events with people that were way more popular than I was. Way more well known than I was in the space, and so I, cr- I created these events. I get, I had them. I brought an audience to them. I brought a camera, a high quality video production from Hollywood to them. I g- gave them a video. Both of them loved it. They both got exposure, and also I got to be part of that equation. And then we chopped up the video and I gave it to them, and they published it, which created a lot of awareness inside of their communities. To me, that is a um, a textbook B two B influencer strategy that. I used with other people, right? And so any company listening could do something like that. You sell uh, finance software to CFOs, go find the people that CFOs listen to and, and put in, I know you can't put an event together right now, but you could put in a virtual event, you could do an event in person. Like if wh- whichever company takes me up on this one would be very smart is whenever you can do events again, punt, On the $2 million that you're spending on trade show booths right now and set up 100 micro events around the country with 50 people curated with the the most popular person that's in your target demographic, you and that person, Fireside Chat, in every city doing a different type of programming. I know people that have gone around and done 16 cities and presented the exact same thing in every city but this is partially content creation. And so it's a different type of programming in every single one. And then you have a hundred sets of long form video content that you can chop up. You have a hundred episodes of a podcast and those two things put together along with all of the good things that people say, if you actually deliver on the content that come to the event and you put on a good event, all that stuff put together is going to cost way less than your $2 million trade show budget. And you're going to have a way bigger impact. And so that's something that a a large company could take away and do, um, when events are ready. So the event strategy I thought was really interesting. Um, and then where do we go? And then at that point, this is where the lockdown started to happen back in, um, in March. Um, putting that, this, this thing together with Gitano was the next layer. Like the lives, the live zoom with Gitano. Catano is another like sort of influencer strategy. He brought a lot of awareness to me and vice versa to him. And then we had the podcast and now literally the podcast is what drives the results. And so you can see how that like progression of things happened. Like some, a lot of people would have done LinkedIn written text and just kept going with that. Oh, we found something that's working. I'm getting views. They wouldn't have added the video. They wouldn't have done the events. They wouldn't have started the live zoom. They wouldn't have done the podcast. That is a progression of building on top of things while still doing all the things that got you there. I think that's a, it's a really interesting point as I continue to interact and work with companies is that they'll get stuck in one certain thing and they won't go any further. Or if they do decide to go further, they'll abandon all the things that they were doing before. And it's smart to abandon the things you're doing before if they're not working. A lot of companies could throw out most of their playbook right now. And I think that would be a benefit too. I don't want to go on another rant, but I do want to, but I'm, but I am, I'm going to, <laughs> um, I, I, I think people should really, really think about getting rid of all the things that don't, that aren't working for them right now. If you just took a second and looked And all of the stuff that you're doing and all of the money that you're spending and all of the resources that you have, not only in the marketing side, but also in the sales side and the activities that they're doing and whether or not those activities are actually moving the needle for you. And if those leads are actually getting somewhere and you stopped doing those things, you would have so much freedom to go out and find things that work. And so I'll get off my soapbox right now. I have a second story, um, but I will, I'm going to, we'll get to questions, but I think the second story will actually be interesting because it's, it's me in-house for, I'll go through a similar progression of that, but it's, it's when I did this in-house where I figured this model out in 2016 and continued to build on it. So we'll leave some suspense there and pause for questions.
2: Dasha had a question um, just related to what you were just talking about for the people you invited on the podcast. Um, in the, the the beginning of the story you just told did you have a previous relationship was no. it a cold call email thing
1: linkedin linkedin dm to literally random vps of marketing at software as a service companies that's it i didn't even i didn't even really know that like much more about what was going on in saas to be honest the funny thing people are like people really overvalue industry experience really overvalue it. It was really important to understand your industry in 1999. When you couldn't get in touch with people, you had no idea who to get to. You couldn't produce content. You couldn't get contact information. You, the information that you needed to learn about stuff was not there. Like, I think it's one of the key gifts for me is that I learned all this stuff. I'm, a lot of the things that I learned. Most SaaS marketers don't know talking to customers. No SaaS marketers do understanding how to drive actual positive ROI and stuff. Most SaaS marketers don't know how to do that. And so it didn't take, it doesn't take that long to go in and really learn an industry. If you understand marketing fundamentals.
2: Another good question from Jonathan on your story, without the COVID lockdown, would anything have changed with your strategy progression or timing?
1: You know, I seriously look back and wonder whether or not we'd have this podcast. Like I'm, I'm, the situation that's been going on is, um, very unfortunate. Um, but if you look at it in glass half full type of, um, situation, like there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. People that are strong made strong adjustments in one. And so, um, I, I think some of the things that might've changed is I'm not sure if the podcast would have happened. I would have definitely, I had two events scheduled that I had to cancel (laughs) one with Jake Dunlap in Austin and one with Sahil Manzuri in San Francisco. So I would have been a, an event a month in a different city, like the advice that I just gave. Um, and so that it would probably lean more in-person micro events and it would have been less virtual zoom. And then hopefully I like to think that we would have been smart enough to realize to rip the audio and start the podcast, but I'm honestly not sure if we would have. <laughs>
2: We had a great question submitted in advance by Haley Martin. I'd love to, let's bring you on Haley. And you can ask your question live to Chris.
3: Okay.
1: Um, good to see you.
2: Yeah, you
3: too. I listen to the podcast, um, a lot in the car, but this is my first time joining the actual Zoom. Great
1: great to have you. It's a beautiful clock you have there.
3: It doesn't work. I should have just said, it um, but I am very new into my role. I'm the VP of marketing at a at a tech company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have inherited two team members. Um, one is a director of marketing. She's kind of like a jack of all trades. Um, and the other hire just started a week before me. And I think we're both still kind of unsure what he's supposed to be doing. But um, my question is about structure for teams. Um, just have you seen for small startups are like 15 million are 50 employees. Um, and they basically told me, you know, I can do whatever I want, but I've worked with larger teams in the past. So I'm really struggling with how to structure a team that's so small.
1: What are you most strong in?
3: Me, um, no. and marketing operations.
1: Cool. Um, so, I'm, and then this, if you had to like really nail down skill sets, of the two people you have, what would you say they are?
3: Um, The director of marketing, probably brand PR communications. And honestly, the other guy, I'm not not sure yet.
1: Okay. Um, Does he know what he's good at? You should ask him.
3: I did. You know, he also says jack of all trades, but we can't all be jack of all trades. Somebody's got to focus on something.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think there's a, um, a super clear one, which is a product marketer. Okay. I think that one's really clear. Um, the next one I would go to is creative.
4: Okay.
3: For like Uh, all things, content, video. Um,
1: I would, I would lean just given where we are right now. I would make it a, a pretty heavy, um, graphic design type of role. Um, paid social ads, social media. And then if they, a lot of those people can also kind of put it together in like video, mini animations, video editing, stuff like that. And that's the person that I would look for. A lot of people are going to lean heavier on video and then not exactly be heavy in, in graphic. I would lean more on the design side. Just, I think that's, um, more useful at this stage. And then, um, and then the last thing is you could, you'll need to figure out on, on, who are you selling to and what's the cost of the product? Let me go there. Let me go there first.
3: Yeah. Um, we're selling, well, to be honest, I think the company's kind of like starting over. Um, they were a marketplace product. They're shifting more to a SaaS model. Um, selling to general contractors and material producers. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think we're still working <laughs> through pricing. Um,
0: so, okay,
3: million, yeah. It's like all over the place. Anywhere from like, $5,000 a year to one of our customers is $12 million.
1: Okay, so. Sounds good. Okay. So the, the next thing I would think about is, well, I put paid in here, but I would consider, I would think about like distributor. Okay. And so that can be through a lot of channels, email. Like it's, a, if you find the right person, it's, it's more of a skill on the distribution of content, not the inner workings of the ads. It's like, how do you, how do I get this to someone where they actually consume it? And what's the right channel to do it? And how do I need to repackage the asset in order to deliver the message in that channel? I think that's what you're looking for. Some, I mean, for you general contractors, I think your Facebook Instagram is going to be a great place and then somebody's going to need to figure out uh, for those long, very large sales cycle deals. Podcasts is the way.
3: Okay. Sounds good. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So just to recap for everyone and Haley, you as well, um, product marketing, creative distributor, And then with your skills in like demand orchestration, and then you have two other people that you'll kind of need to find a home for.
3: Awesome. Thank you.
1: Happy to help.
2: Lori had a follow up just building on that. How would you gauge a good distributor? What qualities requirements do you look for?
1: That's a really good question. It's weird. I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but when you think about if you're actually looking for a distributor, not somebody that does math and runs ads for cost per click, you need someone that has a lot more skills on the sides of psychology and empathy and is uh, more curious about your actual buyers. I think those are some intangible skills that marketers could benefit from a lot. Um, So those are some of them. And then you're going to need to look at the, overall kind of like understanding of a marketing engine. And those, there's a lot of questions to probe on that because people are going to lean on one channel. Like even me, like, you know, I, I just lean on, on paid predominantly paid social is like the, the number one, especially if you're in SAS and then organic social. And then you just kind of have an, a rank order of how people go. And so what you need to do is you need to figure out what are the best, what are the top couple channels right now? that are going to be the way that I get to these people. And you can go out and verify, validate that on your own before you hire this person. And then, you know, okay, I need someone that has top skills in paid Facebook and then email and then blah. And then you have a rank order sort of prioritization about who you're, who you're looking for and what's the most important. uh, And then in the questions, (laughs) in the questions, I would focus on, um, trying to probe about whether someone actually cares whether or not someone consumes the information. It's going to be a, it's going to be a really interesting thing to tease out because I don't think a lot of marketers actually think that way, which is fascinating.
2: Cool. Paul Bartlett, you just asked a really good question in the chat. Why don't you come on and can kind of give, give Chris the lowdown and see what he says. Hi, Chris. All the, way you
5: all the way from Europe.
1: Paul, it, yes. must be, it must be late for you, man. What's going it's,
5: on? Uh, yeah, it's 2 a.m., but I'm yeah. uh, doing some late work and I thought I'd join the show. Yeah,
1: glad to have you.
5: Um, first, it's the second time, in fact. Yeah, so um, we started a podcast back in July um, and it's been gaining momentum. Uh, we mainly do it around privacy and security Great. And uh, we've had some pretty interesting characters on the show, but now we've come to the point where the executive team doesn't feel that it's driving any, the typical thing, it's not driving any leads or any revenue. And I think (laughs) the pressure is coming from down from above, which is the investors as well. Um, And for me, it's such a shame because we see that we're starting to get traction. I I think I put in the comments that we're starting to see more followers on LinkedIn. Um, We're starting to see significantly more downloads, but Mm -hmm. it's always the revenue and Mm -hmm. driving it into the top of the funnel. And I've kind of stuck really about where do we go from here? Because they want to reduce the number of uh, podcasts we do um to mm-hmm. one a month and we're doing bi-weekly ones mm-hmm. right now so what advice can you give me to maybe push back on that
1: and, and combat that we are going to have a delightful conversation because this is not <laughs> uncom- this is not uncommon honestly yeah. i faced this in as an employee in 2018 okay so we can talk through it together because i made some mistakes and you can learn from them sure. um, first question when you say it's gaining momentum tell me what you mean
5: Um, so... It's starting. We're, like we said. We're starting to see more more significant downloads and, and people following. I don't have all the numbers, but my media manager tells me that it's all those numbers are going up. Um, are we
1: talking like hundreds and
5: in in yeah? Battles? I mean, it's it, to put it in perspective. We started from zero, Chris, and you mm-hmm. were the you were the inspiration behind us doing the podcast. Let's be mm-hmm. straight to the point. I reached out to you in the early part of the year. Mm-hmm. I know lots of people reach out to you, and I told, went back and I said, "We've got to do a podcast. This mm-hmm. is the way to." Go, the way that we're doing things right now, trade shows, all this kind of stuff with throwing mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of euros in investors money into the bin, collecting business cards. Mm-hmm. So we got to try something different. Let's not put a plan together. Let's go out and start doing it and then see where we get to from there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we started on this and when we from nothing, we start to pick up followers on Spotify, on, um, on Apple, and of course, yeah. what I start to see is significantly the comments coming in on the LinkedIn channel when we yeah. post snippets. The right people, the followers, exactly. And then I'm looking at who's commenting, who's mm-hmm. following, mm-hmm. and we're starting to see some the audience that we're trying to attract is the, the audience is there. These are the signals, and those are the signs, and and I don't want to stop that momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, as yeah. you can imagine, so yeah.
1: yeah. And we're going to figure out how to not stop that, but there's probably yeah. some other things we're going to have to do. Um, what else are you doing in marketing?
5: Well, I'm not in marketing. I'm on the sales guy. So oh, man. Um, but <laughs> I'm probably one of the few that are on oh, here. I was sorry. I love that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm just fascinated by this whole demand generation thing. And I think you're on the right track and I want to learn more about
1: it. And, um, yeah. And so uh, where's the breakdown? So uh, let me just kind of talk you mm -hmm. through my question. The breakdown on this from a marketing perspective is because they're doing the podcast and they don't have a core demand engine running that's hitting company goals. You cannot create a podcast Mm -hmm. if you can't hit your goals on your own whether, whether you're in your shoes, but mainly for marketers, this is where I got trapped. Mm. Um, and so because you start the podcast, it's picking up momentum. People love it. Um, things are moving. And then the CEO has to go to their next board meeting and comes back and is like, we need 500 leads. And then you get back on the hamster wheel. And so what I've figured out and I tell companies, to do, I tell companies to do this because a lot of punk companies come to us and say, can you help us start a podcast? And I'm like, you need to get your stuff going first because the podcast doesn't have a chance if you're not hitting your goals already. So let's do this first where we have leads coming in. They're converting to SQO at a high rate. We're hitting our SQO targets, ideally exceeding them. And then the podcast comes on the over the top. And then you go from, and the, the podcast is what drives everything long-term, but I call it clearing the space. You need to clear the space organizationally so that activity doesn't get scrutinized in the short term. Mm-hmm. And so figure, I, I would figure out what they are really looking for and then see if there's a way for you to close that gap in the short term in order to have more space to keep going because moving from bi-weekly to monthly is not the move. Mm-hmm. Got any follow-ups? That was a good, good little segment oh, I, there.
5: Yeah, I don't. I'm just taking the notes. Yeah, yeah. Feel free. That. Cool.
1: Hope it was helpful. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. Good luck, man.
2: Thanks, Thank Paul. Great,
1: great to hear. Um, great to hear those results. Love that stuff. Yeah. Thanks, a lot.
2: Julian, I saw you came on, and we didn't get to your question last week because I didn't see your email till till the end of the show. Um, and I have it. Do you remember your your Facebook question? Do you want to come on and ask it, or do you want me to ask it for you?
4: Um, yeah, I can ask it. I'm like, have, I'm like cleaning my kitchen as I'm doing this, but <laughs> let's see if I can pull it together. I so we, we started just running a lot more, um, like paid social, um, and especially Facebook and distributing content. And, and by we, I mean, Matt, who's here also, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> we're trying to figure out how to, and this is a very in the weeds technical, technical question. So understand, understand if this is not the right place to ask, but figured I, I just try and But yeah, we're trying to figure out how to set up conversions properly. And because there's just so many different little nuances in Facebook that we're not like, we're not 100% sure how to do it right. And mm-hmm. I think I have a, I have an okay idea, but just curious in terms of like, what is your basic setup? And then, what are the, what are the conversions that you track? Is there anything else that you track aside from, um, like demo requests and form submissions? Just curious how you guys do that.
1: Yeah. So let's go, let's go through it. So, um, where do we start? You gotta have the Facebook pixel installed on your website. Once the Facebook pixel is installed, you can go in to the settings and set up custom conversions in the events section. You can set up custom conversions based on URL hits. And so I'm going to go with a thank you page, just like would in Google, I'm going to set that up as a custom conversion. I'm also going to set up the actual, so let's just pretend that it's a demo. I know that it might not be for you, but in our general SaaS setup, we're going to have a custom conversion fire when somebody views the demo page. And then we're going to have a separate conversion for submission. If they actually submitted and they hit the thank you page. And so those are the two main ones. The key on this for Facebook, mainly for the listeners is that it doesn't have to be direct response because people are on Facebook in all these different places. And so they can do cross device and we're seeing it work so well. And it's giving us a lot more confidence in our targeting, in our ads, in which, which ad, which messaging and which creative is driving the actual outcomes that we want. Um, and so knowing that we're definitely missing a lot of conversions, right? Definitely that somebody in their work computer is not logged into Facebook and we missed that conversion. Definitely that somebody tells their coworker and we missed that conversion. (laughs) Definitely that somebody does something else and we we missed that one because it's outside of the 28-day attribution window, but we got the brand value up front. We know that we're missing all of this different stuff. And even the ones that we can track, we're getting $1,000 demo requests for a 50k CV software. And I'm super happy with that. And then we have all of the impression share that we're getting at the exact demographic. There are so many benefits to this. If you can get it to work, it's unbelievable what's happening right now. And so those two are super easy. Just set the URL parameters in there. And then in, in content campaigns, what we've been doing, I've actually, because we have the demo set up, I've actually been leaning less on this lately, to be honest. But we can, in Google Tag Manager, you can have set up a separate um, tag to fire when it hits 50% scroll depth or 75% scroll depth or something like that, just to know that your traffic isn't clicking and bouncing. Um, those are like, those are the three that we use. But if you have the end result in terms of demo conversion and the demo conversions are getting you at the result at the price that you want, and they're the right people, then you actually don't necessarily need the scroll depth. The other interesting learning for me, I've said this a couple of times is that the view of the ad drives a ton of impact more so than the clicks and so and and just so if you didn't have this set up, you would have no idea. Like I went I went through the first five years of my career loving Facebook and seeing the results on the Salesforce side and running the stuff in Facebook and then changing the ad budget from five thousand a month to fifty thousand dollars a month and seeing the exact result on Salesforce. And I went off intuition. I couldn't prove it to anybody for the first four years I was doing it. And I and that's why nobody wanted to do it. And now I can actually prove it. So it just gives you a lot more confidence, especially you're doing for clients to go back to clients and be like, how do we know this is working? We spent a hundred thousand dollars a month on Facebook. I'm like, yeah, but we got 110 demos and all these other things too.
4: Yeah. It makes sense for, thank you. First of all, Um, that's very helpful. You got it. So for cross device um, attribution and for view through conversions, is there anything that you would recommend making, making sure to do?
1: So I just set up a, I I wish I could show you, but I really can't because it's client data. Um, I I set up all the conversions and then you can set your attribution window. Facebook will default to 28 day click and one day view. And I use that default window. And then I also look at 28 day view because I know that that impression has a lot of value. And this is not only on retargeting. I know people are going to come back and be like, oh, view through retargeting. No way. Like, obviously that's going to drive conversions. This is on mostly cold. So this is, this is not something about like somebody visited the website, I'm going to hit them with an impression and I'm going to take credit when they convert later. That's not what's going on. Um, And so when you have them set up then you can set up a custom uh, view inside of the general ads manager platform where I have the whole set demo view, and then it'll break out click conversion view conversion demo, actual submission, quick conversion, view conversion. You can go in there and look at that at the campaign level. So you know what campaigns are driving it or what contents driving it. You can go at the ad level and know what audience and what placements and you can go into the ad level and look at what actual creative or headlines or other things are actually making the impact.
4: Awesome. Thank
1: you. Having Appreciate help. it. This was a huge breakthrough for me. <coughs> sorry. Oh my gosh, my throat's getting dry. I think it's because of the winter this was a huge breakthrough for me. We'd figured this out in about, uh, in about April. And the key, the key was that somebody on our, somebody on our team works in e-commerce and was, would track that stuff for e-commerce and we literally took it and now we use it in B2B SaaS, just like a lot of the stuff that we do. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, feeling really good about that insight for people, whether it's Julian talking to me right now or people listening that, that if you want to do something other than direct response, lead gen on Facebook with native targeting, which I know is not going to get you what you want because I talked to a hundred companies that are like, Oh, we don't do Facebook cause we were in native targeting ebook downloads and the people weren't good. And I'm like, no shit. And so if you can, if you can get over that, kind of piece it'll it gives you the data to go back to executives and be like this is what's actually happening this is why we should do this
4: awesome thank you chris appreciate you going down that rabbit hole
1: happy to help
2: good question julian while we're on Great question. facebook it's bob time bob i see that you threw a question in the chat but you also shared maybe not a question but a Facebook nope,
0: no, I just just validated what Chris Chris Jinks um,
1: on two weeks ago. When I ago. read the email, I was gonna pat myself on the back on that one. <laughs> he me pretty good.
0: No, so um, well I just real quick on Julian's question, everything you just talked about doing, does that help at all with the ads actually targeting more properly? Or, or like or can I, I can basically attribute everything on the back end through my IP tracker, my so I don't I don't really need to prove those things you're saying, will it help me at all with the targeting of the ads or no?
1: So a couple of things. It, it will help you, Bob, but only marginally because you're doing a lot of direct... Res- you actually are doing direct response for the most part. That's where the conversions are coming through, which is why you can track them. But there's probably a lot of people that you're missing that are that are seeing the ad and then coming back later at a different time and going to your website and converting that way. And it's going to look like they came through Google. And sure. so and then that would be able to match up and show you maybe that you're making more of an impact than you're able to measure right now. That's the only benefit you can feed it back so you can optimize for a custom conversion. Um, which would be, I want Facebook algorithm to go and find people and optimize for that demo conversion. The challenge is that you need a lot of volume for that to actually work well. They specify 50 conversions a month. I think, um, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. I'm thinking you need hundreds of conversions a month for that to have a shot and you need a very large TAM and you need to have a very wide net. So I think product led is a more appropriate space for that. If you're selling sales, sales motion, relatively narrow audience, I feel like it's not going to get you the result that you want.
0: Right. Okay. So just to give you a validation on what you said about not using (laughs) webinar, uh, videos on paid Facebook, I, I edited the content. I, I thought it was a really nice 30 second clip of my speaker. You know, I put title header in it and it looked nice and um, man, it just hasn't fired at all. Like Facebook hates it. It's still in learning phase. Three days later, I got like 30 click throughs. It's like by far the worst performing ad I've done. So what I was going to give credit to all marketers out there on the sales side of things, you know, I deal with a 99% rejection rate in, in my in medical device sales never phased me. But, man, does it sting to have something you create, not perform at all. So I, w- I wanted to give some, uh, some, some respect to all the marketers out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was purely on gut. I appreciate you testing it for us because now we know, but like you can start to, I've, I've run enough video campaigns and I've been a consumer of enough of those kind of like, let me record a, you know, three minute thing and then r- run $10,000 in media on it and LinkedIn and waste money. Um, I've just watched people do that as a consumer. I just didn't feel like it um, was going to work for people. Um, that's a little bit of me marketing, but I feel like I have intuition about how people consume that stuff now. Um, so yeah, but happy happy to roll through, because I expect that you have something new to report on or another question.
0: Well, I certainly have a question about the other about the other thing about clearing space. So one of the challenges I'm having here is we're so early stage. And in this market that I'm trying to target, I even went back to my CEO and said, you know, is this really the place where we should be? Because we have four different main segments that we can service. And the corporate retail side is something that's on autopilot. Those are contracts with big box stores that they're just coming in. We're rolling out new locations. It directly competes with these other targets, the private practices that I'm trying to sell to. And then within that market, there's, doctors and then there's optical stores and so i've arrived at kind of a conclusion where the the doctors may not be our best market they're kind of threatened by what we're doing and so you know our messaging right now is very confused our website's confusing to people because we're trying to be all these things to different people and then you talked about clearing that clearing the space where right now there's no history of hitting any sort of goal the goal is kind of arbitrary and there's no there's no scalable reproducible sales process yet I'm 5 months in in the past at another startup I went out first rep in the street cold called mm-hmm. established a rep could sell a million dollars a year doing what I just did and we scaled with the salesforce doing that way with this I'm kind of finding a tough a tough situation where and now starting to get the questions of well how many meetings did we get this in the last 2 weeks We haven't had any contact requests dropped off the shelf the last two weeks. It's Thanksgiving in the U.S. I know. (laughs) So I I just kind of wanted to get
1: people read into stuff that just doesn't make sense. Yeah.
0: So early stage, (laughs) what would you do to kind of, I've already got the commitment to run this for six months, guessing that was kind of what our sales cycle would be. Mm -hmm. We're four months in going on five months here. What would, like, how would you continue, how would you continue to kind of set the stage So that because we don't have the baseline sales, that this is gravy on top, we're kind of doing this as the what is going to be the driver for our future momentum. Any advice in terms of setting it up for success at a very early stage?
1: So I think what the stuff that you're doing, what we can debate on whether big box or, you know, physicians are the right target, but like the actual tactics feel like the right things the thing that you need to consider is whether or not you need to be doing more real sales or whether or not somebody should like when people ask me this question in a six month sales cycle and they're like, what should we we be doing from a marketing perspective to move this faster? It's like, go do sales because when you do, when you do marketing with very short term results, you do the wrong with very short term focus, you do the wrong things to produce metrics to make you feel like you're going somewhere. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: we hired an SDR, and I was initially I reached out to my Rolodex, and that's where I quickly arrived to your conclusion that the man gen was going to be the way to go with this mm-hmm. going outbound. Uh, even to my existing Rolodex was not proving fruitful for this target audience that we're focusing on.
1: I would f- so me pr- me not knowing only what you've told me over these past like six episodes, I would look for like larger practices whatever they are groups and I would be having an SDR or whoever you decide to hire, try and set stuff up with that and, and use the demand ends up being kind of like the everything that you're doing where you might catch one-offs or different stuff like that. And then you're hunting, which is what every company, whether regardless of the size should be doing. Okay. If they SDR companies of SDRs chasing 6k ACV deals. It's okay.
0: like,
1: um, so like I said, I, I don't know enough about the business to give you real advice, but my gut is try and do some sales on the larger type of stuff, and then keep I would keep going with the things that you're doing because based on what you've told me, it's you're moving in the right direction. Just like you're in a six month sales cycle. Got it. Thank you.
2: Ooh, a good follow up question from Haley: What size deals do you think justifies having an SDR?
1: So, who was the question from? Haley. Hey Haley
2: she's on earlier
1: um, Good to see you. Good to hear from you again. So my good friend, actually both Megan and I's good friend named Justin Welsh, and I did a an event in in Santa Monica in February, and we talked about this exact topic and so maybe Angelica or megan can can drop the link in here for Haley and she can check it out because Justin went into a lot of depth and he's a really smart guy, and so I'll just kind of reiterate his thought process on this is that um, when you think about how much it's going, what ACV is required in order to kind of like afford a SDR, AE um, split. The thing to think about is how much you can start with, how many opportunities is the SDR going to generate? And so Justin had said, based on his experience, that you can expect an SDR to generate somewhere between 10 and 15 opportunities a month. (laughs) And then based on those, let's just assume you're going to win 25% of them. So let's say you win three deals and then you have to think about that on on an annual. So you have three deals. Let's just pretend it's 10 K to get started. So you have three deals at 10 K that's 30 K MRR times 12 is 360 K you're paying the, you're paying the SDR. Let's just say 80 loaded. You're paying the AE 150 loaded. That's two thirty. You have margin on the product as I talk through this, I realized that the way Justin said, it was a lot more clear. I'll just give you the number. Ju- Justin thinks the number is 15 K ACV. Um, I personally believe it's closer to 30 because I think that outbound is getting less effective.
3: Okay. Good to know. We have two on our team right now. So
1: they yeah, almost so, have
3: more SDRs than marketers at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's, 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 in that situation, it's more, it's not about whether or not to have them, it's where they're focused. Right. And so like, um, they just should be focused. If you know that there are, I think you mentioned earlier, there are deals that are 12 12 million. Like they should just be focused on the higher end of the spectrum. The larger the deals get, even regardless of how inefficient that channel is, it'll, it, it, it's just what companies like to do. It's the only way to justify it. Um, and so I would just kind of, help them prioritize or set guardrails on where they, where they have the the highest chance to get the revenue that you need to make. It makes sense.
3: Okay. So for the marketing leads, the like demo requests, would you still, cause right now those are going to the SDRs. Um, they're not doing any outbound mm-hmm. prospecting.
1: The critical question that everyone needs to, to, um think about during this question. I mean there's multiple, but the number one question I ask is what percentage of those are converting to opportunities? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah it's a question. Let's go through it.
3: Yeah, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. We um don't have any tracking in place. Like that's number one on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. Um we have all the tools. We have HubSpot, we have Salesforce. It just wasn't necessarily set up the right way. So that's a work in progress.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think the cutoff is 50%, but a lot of the companies that we work with are closer to the 75% of opportunities are getting through an SDR and getting to a first meeting with an AE. If that number is greater than 50% and it's better than a coin flip odds that they're going to get to an opportunity, I prefer to send it to an AE because I think that the first call goes better. And I think you have a better shot of winning the deal.
6: Okay.
1: There are other organizational constraints yeah, there are other... I just want to make sure I clear because I know people are going to be listening to this afterwards. We're like, oh, this guy's an idiot. There are other organizational constraints to consider, like whether or not your A's can follow up on time and how things are routed and 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 stuff like that. Um, which is another reason why I feel so passionately about getting rid of all the junk. And so if, you know if all of your A's didn't have eight demos on their calendar that are people that you squeezed in from ebook downloads or through cold calls that barely co- even come uh, qualified opportunities then they'd have a lot more time to follow leads that are good. Right. Um, and so, um, that's, that's my approach because I think that it's more, um, it's a better customer experience. It's a better buying customer experience to talk to the person that that's going to finish the the job. I think the companies have in instituted the SDR, and then over time made it less and more and more efficient for them, and less and less customer centric. Um, and so, can you get it done with an SDR? One hundred percent, right? Like you have a smart SDR; they're trained well, they know understand the buyer. They can set up the meeting. They pass the information to the AE. The AE in the first meeting actually does a discovery, which isn't a reiteration of ban that get happened with the SDR. Like the process, I'm, I'm not hating on SDRs. The process can work with an SDR. I just have found in my experience. And also like, actually we can get to this. We can get to the story because this is a good lead in here. When I worked for this, um, when I worked for the medical device company in 2016, I they were, when I got there, they were 27 million ARR and, did no mark basically no marketing they built trade show boost and they did sales training and they everything went through the channel and they had a field sales team and over time they built a four-person sdr team (laughs) and when we started running demand gen and driving demo requests that were very good in the icp i wouldn't talk to the aes because and we sent them to them and they're like these people are good we had a meeting they were closing and then the volume started to get so high that the company the company wanted to start to send them to SDRs because there was too much volume and the reps couldn't follow up in time and different things like that. And I, in the shadows heard from the reps and they're like, I don't want the, those are good leads. I don't want them to go to the SDRs. I want them to come to me. You're I only have a hundred accounts in my territory. And if I have a lead in one of those accounts and you're going to give it to an SDR, give that to me. And so that's how I just, think about it like I was a sales rep, you know what I mean? Like, and so that's what, that's what the AE said. And then what do we do? The volume got so high and the executives forced it and we passed them to SDRs. And what happened? The conversion rate to this, to the first meeting stayed the same and the win rates went down because the first call didn't go as well. And then what happened? The next company I went to did the same thing. Going to AEs, things are going well. We had baseline data. The volume got too high. They're like, we can't handle this anymore. We want to send them to SDRs. We send them to SDRs. Same thing happens. First, first call, fine, because that's how the SDR is incentivized, is to get someone on that meeting, and that's how they get measured. And the win rates go down. And so I think if anyone was thoughtful about their actual high-intent leads that come through a demo form and, and did that experiment, they would find the exact same result if it was set up to succeed. And a lot of companies will move it from SDRs to AEs and actually set it up to fail because the AEs aren't bought in. They don't have the right tools in place. The notifications aren't there. They don't have an SLA. They don't have rerouting rules or whatever they need. And then if you don't set it up the right way, the experiment's going to fail because your AEs are going to fall up in 36 hours and, and the lead's going to be not interested. So that was a little bit of a rant, but did I answer your question or not? <laughs>
3: yeah, no, that was really insightful. Um, I've never, I've I worked for several tech companies at this point and it's never been set up that way. It's always to like some middle layer. Um, um, do you know why? Just because of the speed to lead thing and the control of the process.
1: I actually think uh, if I really play back why, um, I think that the actual problem is, is built from predictable revenue. And so the way that predictable revenue was built was built around the same time as marketing automation. And so they, at first it was just people banging the phones, getting meetings. And then all of a sudden we had this new thing called marketing automation where we could get a bunch of leads and then the SDRs had people to actually call and then they could probably even better bang the phones and get the meetings. (laughs) And then what happened is people started to all at that point. There were people all they were thinking of was I need contact information. Like I'm not even sure Zoom info was around back then, right? It was like I need your email address, I need your phone number, I need you to fill out this form so that we can go and do this. And then what they did is they tried to drive so much in. And when they drive so much in, what did they need to do? They needed a low, uh, low costs low efficiency, like relatively low skill employee to go through and search for the needle in the haystack in order to get the meeting for the rep. And that same methodology is driven into the demand waterfall. And now it still exists because companies have a small amount of high intent leads coming through a demo form and a huge volume of low intent garbage coming through ebook downloads and other stuff. And they put it in the same bucket and the SDRs have to sort through it.
6: Yeah.
3: And
1: so I think that if you look back in history, I think that's how that stemmed. Um, and a lot of that still exists. Like I talked to a company today, 350 million ARR that has a hundred SDRs and is doing that exact thing. And so the problem gets worse as you grow. It's better to fix it early.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: Happy to help. <laughs> And so I want to, I mean, I'm sure there's, maybe there's a ton of questions in here, but I kind of want to go down that path because I think it, I, I actually do think it would be incredibly helpful for people to understand how I navigated inside of that company when I knew it was right. And, but I was, early, I was relatively early in my career, right? So it's 2016. I'm probably like 26 years old. I have a, I have a base of knowledge coming in product management, um, process engineering, um, you know, website design, SEO that, you know, some downstream stuff, but not a ton that moved to this company. It's hundred percent field sales outbound and I'm doing sales enablement and sales training and building trade show boost. And I'm like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like, why, why are we doing it this way? And then I would actually go and talk to customers with salespeople and realize that like, these are not, th- these people are not ready to talk to our sales rep. We are talking to people that are at 0% do, done the buying process, not 80%. And so then I started to figure out what are the things that we need to do. And so when I started in May, I literally ha- ha- I put HubSpot on Salesforce. Um, and then I started to do things and this is a place I need people to really understand because I, very few people are, were ever in this situation where the company didn't even know what HubSpot did. The company didn't know what I should be doing. They didn't know what budget. They didn't know how to measure. Like I had complete freedom and creativity, which is incredibly rare. And so I got to drive some of this stuff. And so anyway, I get through um, through begging for five hundred dollars to run a test to, to deliver a clinical trial um, paper two people through Facebook ads. And it was, I was targeting respiratory therapists and the job titles, literally native in Facebook. I didn't need anything else. And at that point you could run ABM could give respiratory therapists at Seattle children's hospital go. And so I'm, I'm doing this. and I literally have $500 and I, I run the test and for whatever reason, I think it's, I'm, I'm really trying to reverse engineer back. It's like, why didn't I do a lead gen ad? And it was because I I felt like I knew that they weren't going to be good. And I felt an accountability because we just talked about passing leads to the sales reps. I felt an accountability to give only, I never wanted to have a sales rep come back to me and said that lead was garbage. Just, that was the way that I looked at what I was doing. And so anyway, ungated case study, because I knew I wanted people to know about it. I didn't want their, I didn't want the weed. I wanted people to know the clinical trial came out because the clinical trial spoke for itself. It's like, if they understand this, they're going to be more interested in buying our product. And so I ran it ungated with 500 bucks and I sat, I can remember to this day, I was in my bedroom at like 10 PM and the Google analytics, tra- real-time traffic was incredible. Like on $500 spend, we had hundreds of people on our website at once because people were actually sharing at that time. The dynamics of Facebook have changed, but people were actually sharing the content. And then we had four demo requests come in and I just connected the dots. It like seemed, I I, I don't need channel attribution. I ran $500 in ads, a bunch of people on our website. We got four conversions. HubSpot says they came through Google search. I know they came from the Facebook ads we were running and then I had to track them inside of the sales. So now I've spent $500. I have four leads. And I need to track them through the sales process because when I go and ask for more money, I need to be able to prove that it actually did something. Like our, our CEO was 100% a salesperson he had no idea. What about branding or marketing? All he wanted to know is how did it work? <laughs> and so i track them through the sales process and when they get to proposal i'm able to say hey look we spent 500 bucks and we have 100k in proposal and i'm pretty sure we're going to win 33% of that and then we win it and during that time i'm able to run other small experiments and so we have guides like we literally have like good guides that i run they're for an ebook download on through email on the website through paid facebook through paid linkedin and i get a ton of downloads for like $3 at the time, hundreds, maybe thousands of downloads. And then I start to track the effectiveness of that campaign because I look at revenue and pipeline and that's what I care about. And it gets into like six months later and our first one closes for like 23 K and I look at the journey and they downloaded the guide and then did nothing and then bought something. And I'm like, just because they downloaded the guide six months ago, doesn't like, does that really mean that that was what drove their purchase decision? Did they even read it? Like, was that really what moved the needle or not? And then I looked back again and I realized that we did all of that work. We spent all of the advertising and we did all the things and one, we got one customer over the next 12 months. And so I just stopped doing ebook downloads and then I took it and I repackaged that stuff and I started tr- just distributing it on and started seeing pe- more people come through a couple other things that I did that I thought were unique is that I did a video podcast with physicians at that time. This is in like January. And I had the head of pediatric emergency medicine at rainbow children's hospital on my on episode one of my podcast, one of the best physician pediatric physicians in the world. <laughs> and then I got a bunch of, It was just crazy. Like the amount of, the amount of stuff that you could get done. And at that, before I left there, I had like 25 long form video things, but the long form video was again, the cherry on top of the demand that was running. And then the last piece I want to talk about, which is where I really, really learned about how to do this is we, we had a major clinical trial, not that one, about a year and a half later, we had a major clinical clinical trial that came out that was going to change the trajectory of the company. And so when we were up to like 5k a month on Facebook, I didn't know at that time how to communicate how well it was working. I didn't know. I knew that there was revenue coming in. I knew that there was pipeline. I was calculating pipeline dollars per advertising dollar. I did wasn't smart enough to calculate customer acquisition costs against the outbound channel versus this. I just didn't, didn't have the experience to know those things. And then this thing comes out and I'm like, we got to let this go. And they give me $50,000 a month to rip on this thing and we're letting it, we launch it, we let it go, I have like a six asset campaign going out on it for 50K and you start to learn all the nuances about how you scale a Facebook campaign. That you don't just click a button and say, okay, 50K and the results go like that, that there's actually a ton of nuances inside of it. That when you show the content to too many people at once, that the results actually go down a lot that you need to swap the content that you need new creative that, but if you're able to support that, the results scaled better than linearly. We got more pipeline per, we got more pipeline dollars per advertising dollar at 50 K than we did at 5 K. And so going through that process was, was really smart. Um, I don't know if anyone, maybe some people took some stuff away from that. Maybe not, but um, I just, I think the couple of the take homes that I try and think about it is, is it it was such a gift at that time to not have executives tell me what I should do. I think most marketers do not have that, um, that luxury. Um, and then if, if somebody came in, if like the the CEO came in and said, we need a thousand leads, I would have, we wouldn't be here right now. I would have went and delivered leads and, would have gone a completely direct different direction of my career. And I'd probably still be running ebook book downloads. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Take another, take another sip of uh, your drink. We have, uh,
1: I see 99 plus on the chat. So
2: yeah, we have, we have a few great questions lined up from Dasha, Ashley, and Nuam. Dasha, you actually sent one in, in advance. Um, And it's it's a nice uh, long.
1: It's a long one. (laughs) I remember reading it.
2: Do you wanna uh, do you wanna come on and kind of talk us through? Um, It'll give it'll give Chris a chance to catch his breath. (laughs) Unmute you. Yeah. Okay.
7: Yeah. Sorry. As I was typing that question, I was like, "Oh my god, they're never gonna read all this." No, don't apologize.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a good excuse for you to to share your thoughts directly.
7: Yeah, well, um, one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm kind of lighting a fire underneath our operations team to take a look at the experience that our customers go through um, just from the time they're engaged to us through the quoting process for the project and then how projects get executed and how we close everything out. Essentially, my goal is to provide the red carpet experience for our customers to so they walk away feeling like they just had the best experience with us. Um, The business that I'm in is really relationship-based and it's reputation-based. So it's extremely important for us to do those things. And what I discovered in my work is that uh, we do really well when it comes to qualification process. So when a customer comes to us and asks for a solution, we do a good job of making sure that we align on the expectations and what they need with something that we can actually deliver. And then when we actually propose the bid and they say, yes, it's good, we agree, wanna do this, then they kind of send us. Uh, we agree that they send us a PO, but then there's this, this two week break that has to happen because um, of nature of the business. The finance and the legal departments of the both companies have to sync up and talk and figure out all these little details before we actually can kick off the technical side of the project. So for two weeks, there's this period where the buyer's remorse can set in, where the only thing that right now is being done is my sale guy would go in and just drop a line to them being like, hey, we're still cool. Uh, But nothing really else happens. And then it gives an opportunity for a customer to start like developing this buyer's remorse and thinking, oh, well, let me go ask around. They might find out something bad uh, from like, if we messed up on the previous project, and they talked to somebody who wasn't happy with us. And then all of a sudden, like, it's just like, there's this like this, there's no fear. Feeling of excitement. Uh, The excitement is entirely on our part, and then after the customer signs with us, they kind of left hanging uh, for two weeks without really any sort of engagement. So my question was is what are the onboarding customer tactics that you've ever experienced or seen that really kind of puts a bow around this and makes gives you this welcome to the family feeling. And, you know, there's an, added layer of complexity now with COVID because before I could have sent like a package of, you know, whatever it is, like for a team to the office, but now that can't even happen because people are not in the office. Right. Uh, So, uh, and the, kind of to extend that, you know, on the other end, once we do finish up the project, how do we make sure that the the closing out the book, the tying the bow and saying, hey, here's what delivered the project, they walk away feeling like they've been taken care of. So what is what are those some tactics that, like I said, you've either seen or experienced that make you feel like you, you know, make you feel good. That eliminates the buyer's
2: remorse that kicks in after signing, you know, half a million or a million (laughs) dollars. I could speak to this a little
1: bit yeah, do.
2: actually of my time at managed by Q because similarly we had this process where the customer would submit a service request and you know a lot the bulk of the business was cleaning and maintenance of offices but we did ha- you know a lot, some of it was like painting the whole office like minor construction so kind mm-hmm. of what you're describing where you know it's not something that like they buy and then the next day we're handling it there's these like weird gaps of time that where just stuff has to happen and you kind of you have to keep them engaged. So there were a few things that we did um, in the beginning, I guess, beginning from like submitting the request to get the project going from like actually starting the project. And then there were also some things we did sort of at the the closeout in the end. And so the The key problem in that limbo phase between them submitting that request and like legal finance, you know, sort of logistics, all of that getting worked out in the project beginning is the customer is just in limbo. They don't know what's happening. They they vaguely know that legal or finance has to do these things. They know that there's going to be a period of time. But in the absence of information, humans make things up. And are usually more pessimistic, right? So what I found was there just needed to be regular communication. And even if the communication was a very simple update of, hey, Legal and finance has completed this step. This is the next step. We think it will be completed by this date and then this is going to happen. And so you have to figure out the right cadence. We, we found that customers didn't really wanna go more than three to five days without hearing from us when they were within this period. So it was typically every three to five days, there was an email, there was a call. We had a messaging feature within the platform. So sometimes we'd put, push messaging out. So regular communication and keeping them fully updated and using those touch points to build the relationship is something you should consider and figure out what the right cadence is. The other thing, and this was dependent on certain projects and it may or may not work in your use case, but the other thing that we tried was um, this is an opportunity for us to learn more about what the success criteria for their projects are, what their expectations are. Obviously they've submitted a good amount of information in the initial request, um, but is there an opportunity for you to say, hey, tell me more about what you're expecting. Um, you know, what other projects are you working on? Like use it to find out more, to validate your, their, you know, their requirements, their expectations. Um, is there anything that can be done to, from like a pre-planning, um, to get more information from them upfront to provide to whoever's going to be executing on that project to do a good job? Can you make introductions to people that they're going to be working with in advance? Again, you may have some constraints around some of those things, but um, I would think about regular communication, keeping them updated on what to expect, and is there anything that can be done in that period of time that will help set the project up for success. Um, And as you're having those touch points and learning, that's when you can learn some personal information about those things and throughout the project or at the closeout, provide some type of personal gift or personal touch point um, that's relevant to to what you learned. Um, At the end of a project, we were really, um, especially any project that was six or seven figures um we wanted to have almost like a debrief with them like a post-mortem how was how was the project were you happy were you unhappy um you know is there anything that you were expecting that didn't you know happen like actually have like a closeout meeting position it as getting their feedback making sure that they're in a good place um and, you know, that can be a good opportunity to make them feel like you, you know, you got the job done, you care, and, and you're really trying to make sure that, that they're happy with, with that final result. So just a few things from my experience that, that worked well. I don't know if um, you have anything to add, Chris.
1: I think we're good. <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm good on that one. Um, <laughs> but that was a delightful answer. Thank you for covering me on that one.
2: Thank you, Megan. Yeah, hopefully that was helpful. Um, I know Ashley and Nuam, um, two of our favorites that are here with us all the time throughout some questions. Ashley, you wanna you wanna come on the line? Sure. Hi.
1: Hey, hey, what's up? Okay,
2: so we, um,
8: you guys know I run Lane. I have like eight brands. Curated uh-huh. is one of them, and that is our newsletter curation and building platform. And during the month of October, we ran a really great deal in a Facebook group. So like very targeted audience, Mm -hmm. ran a lot of lives, got a lot of feedback on the product. So it was very interactive and we're going back and forth with them. Mm -hmm. And so we more than tripled our annual revenue in like a 15 day time period. Oh, yeah and Love but that. these people are on a deal that like within three years we need them all to bring on like five people like that would be ideal right uh-huh. so they were all begging for an affiliate program in the process because they're in a group of of people who like to to be affiliate um, yeah So we are launching an affiliate program. I just wanted to see because we're going to be in communication with them. They're like a special group for us. They are beta testers. We communicate with them. If you have any advice regarding launching that type of program, of course, it's going to go out to our entire Mm -hmm. customer base, but we are hoping that we take and harness what, what we built with them relationship wise. So this is why it's kind of, I feel like it's a question for both of you mm-hmm. because I think Megan will have something to say about like that community and the customer success and how we yeah. build that and get them promoting our product. But I think you also have like ideas about how referral programs.
1: Yeah. I have an interesting work. stance on this one, um, <sighs> which might be different. I'm interested in Megan's point of view too, but I'll just kind of lay mine out here. Um, I've the, for whatever reason I've always gravitated away from affiliate programs and referral programs, even if people like it, cause it feels too transactional. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, I'll give you $20 when if you refer me a customer, once I get that customer, I'll give you $20. Right. And so I have conversations with, with brands. Like I, we're partners with, with several people and, um, you know, have a conversation with someone and they're like, yeah, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Cause you don't give us any business, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. We shout you out on the podcast every time you're in the LinkedIn profile. We talk about you with 40 customers. We have acquired you nine customers directly. Blah 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 blah. I know that you can't measure it, but I I am way more interested in doing it in that scenario
9: mm-hmm.
1: where there's no if you give me this, I'll give you this, which goes against the whole concept of an affiliate program. But that's just the way that I um, have always preferred it. Um I also think it comes off more authentic, but anyway, I'm I recognize that I'm not being ultra helpful for your question right now. Um so maybe we'll pass it to Megan. In the in the affiliate side, like I think having I I think there's plenty of tools where you have direct attribution and they get their stuff back, right? Like that's kind of the plan.
8: Yeah. And these people got such a good deal that like (laughs) they Essentially, like they're not, they're just going to get money and they're going to be making money. Like it's not, it's like more than what they'll be paying monthly if, if they start bringing in people. So, mm-hmm. or pieces of, like, cause it's just, it's a $25 a month to start kind of product. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, when I way started this at the way beginning, we were on rev shares with several SaaS companies and I'm mm-hmm. completely off of those now, just me personally, because it's, it, it's just not the way that I like to do things. And then secondarily, um, that, the relationship, the vent, the vendor's re- requirements of you often get in the way of what's best for the customer. And so I, I just, I don't know me, me personally, I'm not bullish on them, but I know people that do them and they work mm-hmm. super well. So maybe Megan's got some thoughts cause yeah. Can you help
2: yeah I think the what I would add is i I think that um, i 've done referral programs that you know have had some type of incentive and they can work well, but I think the ones that have worked the best are when the customer or, or your advocate that is is referring or talking to other customers they 're actually coming from a place of authentic enthusiasm for your product, so even if there is some type of incentive that they're receiving by referring that person or doing that action, their their motivation is actually like pure and and coming from a good place. And people can feel, can feel that. Um, and I think people can feel the difference. Like if you have a friend like you know, oh, I, uh, you should really get this great product and I'm going to give you a referral code.
1: Make sure you use my link so I can get 15 So I can
2: get it, but because (laughs) I just really love this product and I know you're going to love it and I want to buy more of it. And then you're like, cool, I'm definitely going to use your code. Let's both buy this thing. Right? Like that's what you want to generate where there is like, there is that incentive. You both get that incentive, but it's like, I'm not doing it because I want, you know, $10 off, I'm doing it because I really love this thing. And I want this person that I know to love it too. And then we both benefit. And then we're going to talk about this thing that we bought. And so I feel like it's really important to identify those people and Mm -hmm. and they should really be the drivers of your community, the drivers of that advocacy, because they're going to generate the type of new customers that you want. And in a way that's going to make everybody involved feel good. I think you want to, there are certainly people like, it's the people that will take a meeting for a hundred dollar, you know, Uber eats gift card with no intention to buy it. Cause they're like, I want the gift card. <laughs> I'll sit through this meeting. <laughs> um, or like, cool, I can refer a friend and like, I don't really care what they do, but like, I want my, like people can tell the difference. And so mm. I think it's, how can you architect the program where you're bringing in those real advocates? Um, and creating, I think that feeling more, more organically. Um, and I do agree with Chris, like when it doesn't work, like it does feel transactional or icky or like, "Mm, this person just kind of wants to get something from me. So it seems like what you're describing though, like Ashley, like people are into it and excited Mm -hmm. about it. So I think you have that to build on.
1: Another point. um, Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Another point here is, is, (laughs) um, what you mentioned is super interesting is the, is undervaluing Facebook groups in an organic standpoint. Like most of the content I get on Facebook, I'm rarely there anymore, but the stuff I get is actually content from groups.
8: (laughs) Mm-hmm, Cause you can set notifications to mm-hmm. get alerted when something happens in the group that you're interested in. So they're all,
1: it's interesting how that like, excited. Kind of like so it's, moved it's, and changed. Yeah.
8: Yeah. So one thing that um, maybe y'all can respond to is the, the idea that these people, maybe because we are in this kind of micro communication with them specifically, and this is an email product, right? So the referral works like there's just a logo at the bottom
0: mm-hmm.
8: and they can click that logo and go. So the idea is that we, we'd we love to train them that this is an organic thing, that keeping that logo at the bottom and that referral link is just something that that is extra for them. Mm-hmm. If they want to point to it in their email, great. But um, this idea that they're all putting out these newsletter publications that it, it's a valuable thing to us for our logo to be seen in good quality newsletters mm-hmm. so that people click that link. Like who made this? Like what, how, how did they get here mm-hmm. to this end product or whatever? So cause our templates yeah. kind of At unique. the bottom uh, standard
1: yeah. powered by block. Like that yeah. the yeah, company, that's the, that's the drive that requirement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you want, you could ask them or you could make it required it sits in the footer of the email.
8: Well, it comes in the footer of the email and you have to request that it be removed. But at this point, I'm like, why don't we use that as the referral link? And
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Sounds like it would work.
2: Yeah, okay.
8: we will see. We'll be testing. So I'll give you guys um, some response. But I'm, I'm curious about like almost... <laughs> going live and coaching them about how to sell it by not selling it. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing.
1: I think you have to make a a call on whether or not that's the right place to spend your time. Yeah.
2: Or can you just I mean do what else do they have to do if you're giving them the the template just, and they just have to use it, right?
8: Yeah, they just go sign up and get the link and add it. Yeah, so
2: I think it's just like laying out the steps really clearly. So (coughs) um, it's easy for them to just execute against Mm -hmm. without any additional training or guidance. I think that's the key to get a lot of people to adopt something. It's like simple as one, two, three, do these things. All All right, right. thank y'all.
1: Cool, cool. Good report. to see you, Ashley.
2: Yeah, yeah, report back later. And a, com- a I couple great, go. I was going to bring up the Girl Scout cookies. Oh, yeah. There oh. was lots of chatter. I think you you uh, got your, your girls some sales.
8: I hope so. Thank you, everyone. They're excited. Everything's like we are mostly digital
2: this year. And so they made videos for their landing pages. I Um, Max has some good questions, but what were you going to say, Chris, before we get into the next one?
1: I was going to cover something, but Max's questions are good. And then I can kind of roll out when I, when we have a pause. So let's do it. Max can always count on you around, around this time, late in the episode, jumping with a couple great ones. Let's do it. Yeah,
9: yeah. always an hour and a half in. Um, so first one wanna just, I feel like we keep coming back to Facebook, but, um, I'm kind of taking over our Facebook ads, which we're doing bare minimum right now. Um, And it's all on the consumer side, but I'm taking over for B2C and B2B. Um, So kind of like what you mentioned earlier tonight about not actually having direct attribution of it's, they will see the ads they might even click through, but then they'll come through an organic channel. Mm -hmm. How do you like actually specifically track those leads in order to show that like, you're not just burning money on Facebook. Like you can point to a deal like this was directly influenced.
1: Yeah. There's going to be no direct influence on that because it violates so many privacy policies on the internet. And so um, the thing that you're going to have is going to be able to be, you know, X amount of people in this audience that was cold, not retargeting converted on this form. When I set up the custom conversions and we paid this much money to get them. And that's you're going to get the cor- you're going to have correlation and proof that the ad is driving that result, but no direct attribution. And so this becomes a, like I mentioned this on a previous episode. This, beca- this became a huge problem for us. This was before we had figured out the custom conversions, and companies are driving a ton of garbage through paid search, two hundred thousand dollars a month through paid search, and you can't even see a blip on the radar with the good demos that are coming through from Facebook. And so th- those are some of the challenges that this would have solved for us at that point. Which is like, yeah, I know that you're getting all these, but here are these over here. And then the second piece is that you wouldn't be able to distinguish quality at that point. And so, um, yeah. the the short answer is it's it's not possible because it violates a lot of privacy policies.
9: Yeah, the issue is too is like if we're not like a startup company or <coughs> a Series B cybersecurity security company. So like, if we do get some uplift in the leads, it's not it has to be like pretty major because we've got a pretty good <coughs> marketing engine running. Yep. Um, Okay, but it might just be as simple as creating a separate landing page dedicated to page just to initially proof it out.
1: Um, um, yeah, that would be a good way to prove it out and run a direct response, and you will get leads, and you'll show that it's in the ICP if you do the right targeting, and like that would be a good way to to prove it out. The conversion rates to the funnel will be lower when it's done that way, yeah. um, <clears throat> but that's a good way. Like When I did it, the system wasn't like... <laughs> it wasn't not simple. Like we had 50 demos coming through pre running Facebook. And so like, it wasn't sin. They were all coming through or organic search and a little bit of paid. And so like there was stuff coming in there and then it's just like the, keep the system stable and then add something in. And you have to know how much you need to add in order to actually sh- to be able to show that layer. This is the prop. This is part of the problem when you have channel specialization or complicated engines running is that you can't, you can't tease these things out. A lot of stuff in marketing is based on correlation as much as people want to have direct attribution, just some stuff in marketing just doesn't work like that.
9: Yeah. Cool. <coughs> um, and then just the last question I had was like, just generally what are your thoughts on like gifting platforms like Sendo? So um, I had the same thought that Megan <laughs> has. Like, I've honestly taken demos before just to get free stuff, like a free gift yeah. card or something like that. So I know that's inevitably going to happen. Um, but just like, in terms of helping the sales team have some more like ammunition to use for the marketing side, like switch up our offers from just like one that we've been running for the past six months, like be able to have it at least change maybe seasonally, change something like that. But just yeah, wanted to know your thoughts on if mm-hmm. there's value in it or if it's like an ABM platform <coughs> where you don't technically need it.
1: Um, I think that there are a lot of nuances here. So I'll try and talk through the things that are going through my head. Um, the first one is it's not, if it's not there already, it will be there at this, be there soon to where like cameo is right? Where <clears throat> marketers come in and ruin it or, Hey, I'll give you a $5 gift card or something that's so unpersonalized that it actually does the opposite of what you want. Like I've gotten gifts from people that are so bland in general that I think that it's just like a scam. It's like you just build this into your CAC and hope that a, a blah, blah blah amount of people will take this gift card and one of them will become a customer. I really feel like pre um, inside of the sales process, it can be a very, Um, cold approach, if not done the right way, I actually think it's kind of uh, disingenuous from receiving receiving some unsolicited for tools that I'm not interested in. And so I look at those things different. Some people would be like, yeah, $50 gift card, let's go. But that's just not how I do it. The next point on this is I know plenty of companies that give away a $200 Uber Eats gift card for someone to sit on a demo. And then their sales team's pissed because they did a hundred demos and none of them actually even move any further than that. And so that's something to be aware of. Helps marketers hit their demo sat number. doesn't help their sales team do anything except for waste their time and then waste a lot of marketing money. Um, That's something to be conscious of because you know it and you sat on demos and you weren't interested in buying because you wanted the gift card and everyone else is thinking the same thing. Um, So um, some people could make the, make the argument that having someone sit for 30 minutes about something that they're not interested in is worth the $200. Like a lot of people could make that argument, right? Um, not good in the short term, but you know, maybe some people could justify how they do it. I truly believe that the, the best place to use gifting is post-sale customer experience, surprise and delight, which I think where it's the the most appropriate. That's what, that's what we do here. We don't use Sendosa to do it. We do it manually, but that's what we, that's how we use gifting. I
2: yeah. could add just one thing from my experience. <clears throat> when I was at Grubhub and on the B2B side, selling the corporate food offering, We um, we did some gifting for mid and late stage sales prospects. So we didn't use it to get an initial meeting. We... Um, were very, very targeted where either they went quiet or we had some type of obstacle and we kind of used it as a way to reignite and like re-spark the conversation. Um, And we tried this thing that people like loved and it was a little gimmicky for sure. But like we basically sent out um, like these little drones without the remote And it was like, call us and we'll like bring, we'll like stop by and bring you the remote. Um, and we actually got a lot of positive feedback. We, I mean, I think it sparked and re like resurfaced a couple of deals that ended up closing. Um, but people, it was, it was novel. Um, and, and we did that. So I think like you can have a little fun with it and, 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 and the reason it worked, it's like, they knew who we were. We knew who they were. We had already had multiple meetings or conversations for whatever reason that it, it stopped for a while. And it was just a way to kind of re-engage on a little bit of a lighter note instead of like sending like the breakup email, like, I haven't heard from you. I guess it's over. <laughs> um, so I think you can get a little creative, but it was very strategic. It was not with a ton of accounts. Um and I think you also have to do those things with without much expectation, but you can have some fun with, with some things like that. But I, I agree. Generally, I've always done it with, with customers more so than prospects.
9: Yeah, we see a huge use case for, for that. But it's also just like in terms of processes of, like you said, like cold ops, um, ones that we want to like have a pipeline accelerator there. Um, we'll try some out with like low value gift card or something like that. I'm not expecting too much, but... Yeah, like we're also rolling out on ABM or ABX, excuse me. I'm supposed to say <laughs> ABX. Um, so like some unique, like high value T1 account ones of like custom gifts. So um, I'm just curious. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. one Instead other. Here.
2: One other. Yeah, one other thing we did that was funny is we would send um, when there were multiple people at the company we knew. I think we did this with like little golf sets. We would send like pieces of a game set to different people in the organization and tell them who else to connect with. And then they would get together and then like they'd have all the pieces to like play golf in the office or whatever. Yeah. Um, so little like little things like that. But again, like very, very strategic.
1: <sighs> cool. So Anna's got a question on here, which is interesting.
2: Yeah. The HubSpot one.
1: Yeah she here um, we can read it Anna you with us
2: yeah I'm here
8: um, yeah so HubSpot just released this new tool for ad sequencing and they're trying to make it like you go through each of the stages of the funnel essentially in your ads of like journey based advertising to try to increase like CTR and ultimately conversions on the ads and I was just wondering like what you thought about that approach to
7: to Facebook ads
1: mm. <laughs> Um, so there's, there's nuances in this one, like most of the questions. So I saw the announcement too. I haven't used the tool, but like you could do the exact same thing manually. And we have before, um, so where do I start super transactional products? This might work like product led or, you know, single buyer, very low ACV, you know, one call close type of stuff. This could probably work as you get more and more complex. This is going to break down. Um, the reason there are a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned a lot, there is no three-step funnel to sell your hundred K ACV SAS tool. It just does not exist. If it was, then we wouldn't be here right now, whether it's through email or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. So a, cu- a couple more mechanics on this. If you have a small audience and you have a six step sequence, none of the people, your, your audiences are not going to be big enough. It's steps three, four, five, and six to actually even deliver the ads right? Like, so the retargeting funnels really break down if you don't have full scale. Um, we ran it for a a customer recently. It's like, it was only a two-step funnel and we only had got like, you know, in order for someone to get from step one to step two, you need a thousand clicks. And if you have a, if you have a, you know, narrow audience, those clicks could cost you, you know, three to $20. And so are you, is, is anyone here willing to spend somewhere between $3,000 and $20,000 to have someone enter step two of a retargeting flow. I'm not sure. Um, so that's, that's one place where it breaks down. The second place where it will break down is if the last ad is a conversion ad for your enterprise SaaS tool and it, because there'll be the conversion. And then it's the exact same thing that happens in all of them is that you're going to have a bunch of people fall out. Very few will actually even make it to, uh, sit on a demo Because it doesn't align with how people buy. And at that point, you might as well have just skipped the whole five steps and just run the get a demo ad and you would have gotten the same result with more scale. (laughs) And so my feeling would be instead of running a six step sequence to just literally run six ads. And then you everyone get everyone gets every message and whichever message resonates with them, they can choose their path. They can get in, they can learn about that, and then they can, you know, click on the little hamburger menu and go through and see pricing. We use high frequency, high variation creative for a reason. It's because you'll never know where people are in their journey and you'll never know exactly what's going to resonate with them. So we give them a lot of different stuff. We understand how the audience is responding. We lean into that data and then we let them decide which one. Do they want to see that case study about how their forecasting got better? Do they want to read this blog about how this industry says that this part of the process is a problem? Or do they want to see a product ad and learn about how they could do better budgeting? I don't make that choice for them. I let them choose. Cool. <laughs> Happy to help.
2: Newam had a question. Is she back?
1: She said, she said BRB. Yeah.
2: She said BRB, but she's back. You want to come on, Nuam, and talk through your question? Welcome back. Hello.
1: Hey, 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 good to see you. Thank you. What's up?
6: <laughs> Thank you guys. Um yeah, I had to jump off because my CEO was calling me and he wouldn't stop talking. And uh, I, can't <laughs> I can't believe I was trying to get him off to come back onto this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so, um, but it's, it's funny because we were t- discussing this kind of thing uh, relating to my question, which is uh, at the moment, I'm trying to drive a big change in the way we do things across our marketing Um, sales and account management Um, and I was just chatting to him now saying it's not really account management it's account growth Um, the way that we with our clients is for both segments so I have to um, clarify we go to one market set which is small businesses so you're always talking to the um, business owner it's a it's a quick sort of discussion and when they need our services they quickly come to us and and the conversion is pretty high Um, and our brand is pretty strong there so a lot of times it is um, word of mouth and our salespeople have been in the industry for 20 years 10 years and so we're kind of well well established the other market segment is big enterprise businesses uh, and it's a a different product and a different cell is the same technology but what we can do for the enterprise businesses is very very different um, in both cases we still don't make any money we don't make revenue until they do business until they're trading um so we can we can uh, you know bring on you know 50 new clients but if they don't trade uh, in the sense if they don't trade we still don't make any money so the way I've tried to sort of reassess where our um, focus is on is even on commissions too, is on, okay, uh, how do we focus on the life cycle marketing piece a little bit more? Um, and then also just on our structure of our team, it's just, it's what we're doing isn't working, but how do I, I'm having a workshop tomorrow with my CEO and the head of sales and we we're just going to sit in the room and start bashing this thing out and i thought oh
1: yeah let's bash it out here first, first? <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, a couple different um Parallels here for different types of businesses. One, I worked in a company that sold a product. The product cost five thousand dollars, and then if nobody used it, the real revenue came off the hundred dollar disposable that was every patient got put on. And so, if you sold the product and then it got sat in the closet, you actually don't get the value because they use the disposables and they realize that they once they use it that it works and they need more of that capital and they need more of the disposables. So the usage. Really mattered. Another same thing in in like a lot of fintech products that go off of transaction revenue is that if people don't actually get in and start transacting where they take you know tenth of a percent, one percent, two and a half percent, whatever it is, if they don't actually get people in transacting, then the whole thing breaks down too. And so it becomes very much a customer success usage game after acquisition. Um, and so I don't know enough of the details of the business, but you need to have somebody I like when, in both times, when, when I've done this, the person that's doing the customer success has done the person's job. (laughs) And so we hire people into hospitals to show people how they use the product in their hospital, but then we would hire them out of hospitals and they would go into hospitals and say, here's how I did it. When I was a respiratory director at my hospital and they would show people and get someone to the point where they get the, the thing and they see it work and then they're good. I don't know if that's the exact model for you. Cause I have limited information, but, um, we called it the aha moment. And A lot of people call it that. Like, how do you get someone to the point where it's like, Oh, I really get it.
2: Yeah, it's, I can yeah. add a few. I can add a few things here because I think both at like at Grubhub and Q, they were essentially like marketplace transactional businesses, right? Like anyone could like I could sign someone up for a corporate account on Grubhub, but I don't make money until they order food on the platform. And so the goal is I need to get them to order food on a regular, recurring basis. And how can I do that as quickly as possible? And so, um, what I've found in all of these businesses is if they don't start using it and achieve that aha moment in the first like 30 maybe 60 days depending on your products and the businesses that I was in if it didn't happen in the first month it wasn't really going to ever happen and so the emphasis is on what can be done in the acquisition or the sign-up process To really vet whether this person is actually going to use the product in the way that you intend them to use it, Um, and really distinguishing between what is the difference in someone using it transactionally on an ad hoc basis versus someone actually using it on a recurring basis, like that's the goal with these businesses, right? Is they they want to be like a SaaS business, so they want the transactions to have some type of recurring nature, predictability too. Yeah, yeah. So it's like in all of the businesses that I went in, one clear instance in the sales process was, oh, there is a profile of customers that might never like transact on a recurring basis in the way that we want. And like, that's fine. We can give them access to the platform and we'll take their money when they transact, but we're not going to put that much effort behind that, that segment because they're never going to do what we want them to do. Right. So you, you should really evaluate Do you have those two groups? And there were the groups where you have a use case to use this on a recurring basis. And I need to go through a series of steps to make sure that you do that as quickly as possible when you're on the platform. Because the longer you're on and the longer you're not doing it, the least likely you'll ever convert to a recurring user. And then you have to be really thoughtful about once you segment the customers that will transact on a recurring basis, how quickly can you get them there? Can you do things on their behalf to help move them along? Can you manufacture an onboarding process that requires them to do it? So like, for example, at Grubhub, I would say, okay, like you have lunch three times a week. So in the onboarding meeting, we are going to together set up a you know, three X weekly recurring group order that will automatically email your entire company to place their lunch order Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, right? Like, can you work with your customer to hold their hand and, and set it up or do the first transaction with them or whatever it is? And I think you need to pay a lot of attention until they they get over that, that aha moment. So Uh those are some of the considerations that, that I would, would think about there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: On the, uh, on the sales commission side, there was one thing that we did that I thought was smart. And so to we're going back to this hardware consumable where like they need to turn the disposable in order to see the impact, in order for us to get the current revenue, to buy more capital, to buy more disposables, and let the cycle feed itself until you have units all throughout the hospital. And so in that instance, on the first sale, the, the rep didn't make commission until they reordered disposables. So the product got sold with disposables and they actually didn't get the commission until there was a reorder, which incentivized the rep to make sure that the actual implementation with customer success went well. So there's other oh. hooks that you can put in place in order to ins- whatever the activity is, right? Like one order of disposals did not guarantee that they were going to use it in the future, but we found that that was a, a high probability hook to keep moving. And then you can start to attach just a slightly later stage metric on the sales commission.
2: Yeah. And just to add, um, we all, I also did something similar for the profile of customers that would transact on an ad hoc basis. I would either not pay commission or pay a fraction versus someone that would intend to use it on a recurring basis. Um, and because that's what you want. Um, and you, you can let the people that want to do ad hoc just, um, you know, self-serve.
1: Cool, cool, cool. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it is.
6: Thank you, guys.
1: Happy to help. Good luck in your uh, the conversation tomorrow.
4: <laughs> Thank
1: you. all right guys i'm i'm really my <laughs> i appreciate you bearing with me on this thing that whatever's going on my throat has been really dry for like half this episode so i appreciate you sticking with me and i've been muting on the on like when i'm coffee and stuff like that but i have one more topic that i'm gonna really try to get through because i've promised it for like three months and for the how many people here the 21 people that still he, are still here i think really deserve this one which is how marketers can develop business acumen. It's how marketers can, but this is how anyone can. I'm going to lay out three different ways that you could do it with low friction in order to, to learn it right now. And so, um, and these are all things that I have done. So the first one that you could do is you could set up a side business that is a consulting business. And you don't even need to make revenue in order to figure this stuff out. And this is an idea of investing in yourself to learn not to make money. You might actually make money in the process. You might actually find a new career, all these different things. But the goal of it, intent that the onset is to learn. So you can set up a consulting business. You don't need to do an LLC. You spend $30 a month on QuickBooks online, you attach your bank accounts, you set up a separate bank account for business expenses, and you can start to understand like tax, um, the benefits of of having this set up for taxes. You probably, if you're gonna report it on taxes, you probably wanna make money. As a note, this is definitely not tax advice. I think I have to legally say that. And so, and then you can go and you can start to look at what are my expenses that I can actually write off. I'm going to a meeting with a potential customer. I'm going to, and we're going to get coffee and I'm going to buy the coffee. I'm going to put that on my corporate card and I'm going to write that off. That becomes an expense. Right. And then I make money and over time, as you start to do those things, you start to look at different pieces. That's a, it's a, that's finance one one to just get a QuickBooks, online line subscription, just think about what a business expense is. Level two of that, which is mainly what I did um, at the beginning was I start, Was I st- started an e-commerce company. I think that a lot of people would get a ton of value. They might not make a lot of money, but they would learn an absolute ton to start to go and source a thousand pieces of something on Alibaba or something like that, to bring them into the US to invest a thousand dollars in that inventory, to set up a QuickBooks account, to figure out how to sell things on, on Amazon, to sh- figure out how to build a Shopify store, to understand when you buy it for a dollar each and, you, and to figure out how you need to price it. Because Amazon, you know, let's say you price it at $10, Amazon's gonna take 15% cost of goods sold. The co- the actual cost of goods sold is $1. You're going to spend blah, blah, blah on fulfillment. You're going to spend this much to acquire a customer and you're going to figure out how to make that work where you spend $1 to buy the inventory. And ideally you're getting $7 in profit. And you start to figure these, you start to figure these things out and then you realize, okay, I'm selling the product right now at $40. I want to make more margin. You raise the price to 60. You understand how price impacts volume of sales. And so that would be, that would be layer two. I think a lot of people would learn a ton by spending three months of, and going and doing that. And all this stuff is transferable. Just be, if you can read a P and L for a, a company that's doing thousand dollars in revenue, you can go and look at that for a company that's doing a hundred million dollars in revenue. It's just more zeros everything else is the same. It might be a little bit more complicated based on how it's done. And then way, way or three, if you are lucky enough to work at a small privately held company, that's able, that is willing and able to share their financials that you can go in and look at company financial statements. And you can go and do that on your own for, for companies that are publicly traded. You can start to go and look and understand what's going on. I do that all. I do that all the time. I did it a lot when I worked at the venture funded company and under really wanted to figure out how we were posting a $39 million net loss. Like, I was really interested in how that was happening, um, and, and those types of insights is is the only path to reaching a CMO level. Things you must understand finance. You you must understand other areas of the business to become a, a marketing leader. You must. You, I mean, a lot of marketers have gotten there right now without this, but in the future, you're going to need finance. You're going to need to understand sales. You're going to need to have understand how a product is developed. And so if you're in a small company, you have a luxury. It's a small company. You can wear a lot of things. You can go out and, and talk to those people and start to learn. Like those, those are things that are really important. I would highly encourage people to figure out how to kind of pro- cross pollinate skills. I was on a podcast this the, uh, recently today <laughs> Um, where we somehow got on this conversation, which is that in like 2013, I was like basically doing lean manufacturing. We were making high volumes of products. I was trying to figure out how to, how, if we put this process in place right here, how it would save three seconds in building it. And it would save us $2 million that year in cost because that three seconds really mattered to the overall flow or whatever it is. Or I want to try and move this wire from steel being sourced in, you know, Los Angeles to steel being sourced in China and save $4, but we're selling 6 million of those a year. That's a $24 million cost of goods sold. Right. And so trying to figure out little pieces like that. And then if I had that knowledge and now I use that knowledge in how a revenue engine actually works. Right. And so the way that I look at it and the way that every SaaS company is operating right now is if you were running a manufacturing facility, and Matthew will get this analogy. And you had a supplier, your number, your supplier of your most important part leads and your supplier was coming in with their truck every week and they were dropping off leads and 99.9%, 99.9% of them were being scrapped as junk, low quality and thrown out. And you had people out there sorting them. What was the first thing you would do if you were in that facility? You would find a new supplier that had higher quality. And every company has this truck coming every month of leads that, that move through processes at that exact rate and they don't change it. And so just by, just by having knowledge in one, one specific area that's different it transfers to other areas of the business. So that starts that started in why marketers should learn finance or how they should learn it. But actually, actually marketers need to go out and learn everything. <laughs> But I, the, the, I think the most important one, just to make this productive for people, <clears throat> get really good at marketing, finance, sales, product, I think are the ones that are, are most critical and I'm leaving out customer success. Sorry, Megan. <laughs> I kind of feel like marketing and marketing goes into the entire CX. I'll, I'll put it in that way.
2: I mean... Any You could argue that customer (laughs) success is the most important thing for the long term sustainability (laughs) of the business. But (laughs) I get get your point. I get your point.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I would I would challenge people, anyone, whether on the Zoom right now or listening, could go and do that. And three months later, be way farther than they are right now. By starting a little company, by investing a little bit of money and time and yourself and going and doing those things. And you have a little bit of expense and they're tax deductible, I think. Don't quote me on that.
9: <laughs> <laughs> Hear that. Yeah.
1: Seems like a good, good place to end. I, like I said, I appreciate everyone bearing with me. I recognize that because I can hear myself talk that I might've not been the most pleasant to listen to tonight, but always appreciate you. I was really um, disappointed. is not the right word, but I was like, felt like I missed something last week because I wasn't here, but I heard it was great Um, and really happy to be back. Um, My favorite night of the week. And so love having you all here. Hope to see you again next week. Hope you have a great night.
2: Have a good week, everybody.